since day zero, we were like, we are only going to try this if we think we have a chance of it being big and impacting a lot of people. So even we were not selling so much products, we spent so much time figuring out a scalable way of working with the communities. We tested hundreds of different ways. And it was very cool because the one that worked was when we involved the community a lot in the process. We're the Majority Group, and this is Style as Identity, where we profile the designers and founders whose mere existence shifts our understanding of the style status quo. We're your hosts. I'm Lola Catero. And I'm Frankie Aquasim. And after years of settling for style that didn't represent us, we set out to find the brands that did. Join us each episode as we learn from brands that are an extension of their values, identity, and aesthetic. And because of them, we're seen and represented. The theme is heritage, and for someone somewhere, the goal is impact. When Nuno, Fatima, and Kike got together, they did so with one goal, to eliminate poverty for as many people as possible. Impact at scale. Born and based in Mexico City, the trio relocated and lived with the communities they wanted to impact. Years later, their lifestyle brand, Someone Somewhere, preserves culture and honors tradition by providing hundreds of artisans with work. Work that they want to do, where they want to do it, and at a wage that's higher than both Mexico's national wage and the international fair wage minimum. Let's do this. Follow along with our visual guide. Text someone to us at the number 833-495-4773. Hi, Nuno. Hi, Nuno. Hello, hello. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. Welcome anytime. So to get started, let's just talk about how someone somewhere started, but not even how it started, but like the experiences you had in high school and college that kind of led to the ethos that you and your co-founders kind of carry on. Of course. So Kike, Afa, and myself, we met each other, I think when we were five years old. So we went to the same primary school, high school, college, and we've been together for a while. And in high school, we started going very often on volunteering trips to different indigenous communities in Mexico and then in a few other places. And this is where we became very close with a lot of families and started to understand their world and their context and were amazed by how different it was from life in the city, even though it was so close, maybe two hours away by car. And we started becoming very close and also realizing all the struggles they were facing and were shocked to realize that most of the people we met were living in extreme poverty, even though they were extremely talented and smart. So later on in college, we decided to live in the communities a few summers and understand why they were facing all of these struggles. And we realized the biggest issue was the lack of job opportunities in these communities because they are very remote and hard to access. Many in the communities worked in in the fields, in agriculture, and most women were artisans that learned traditional techniques from their grandmothers or their mothers and did amazing things with their hands. But we realized there were a few things that were making it very hard for them to live from this work they loved to do because it allowed them to work from home and to share their stories. And that's when we thought it would be a great idea to get deeper into the space and understand all the friction that was happening. 
it was very clear that there were so many artisans because everywhere we went, most women were artisans making different techniques. And the moment we learned that only in Mexico there are 12 million artisans and around the world there are 300 million artisans that face the exact same problems and friction, we were like, oof, we have to get into this. And if we find a way of making it easier for them, the potential impact would be huge. So that's how it started. And by artisans, you talk about these very talented, skilled people that learn these techniques from their families and community. Is that how you... Yeah, I would say it's they learn handcraft from their families. And in this case, they all live in rural communities, like remote communities or villages in the mountains most times. And a lot of times they come from indigenous backgrounds or like from the pre-Hispanic communities and the ones we focus on, they usually live in extreme poverty. So it's less than $2 per day, which is very tough. So those are the things that all of them have in common. I mean, that's so interesting to think these like incredible techniques that I would never be able to do and don't have that capability. And now we live in a society that has devalued these talents and skills. And so how did we get here to like this system that doesn't emphasize value on that? Great question. So I think for a long time, every product was made in an artisanal way. But when machines and factories started to become a thing and started to make products at a lower cost, little by little, the artisanal techniques started to be lost because it was cheaper to make things in an industrial way. But I think what's happening more and more is that society is adding a few key criteria to their decisions. The two biggest that I think is that poverty and climate change are very, very clear problems. And a lot of people now understand them and are trying to find ways of fighting them. So when you add the potential impact, like social impact of the artisanal way of doing things and the sustainability side because usually doing things in that way is more sustainable and uses way less resources then it starts to compete again against the industrially made products so i feel that's what's helping us like grow and reach more and more communities because we are i think getting into this point where both the industrial and the artisanal way of doing things will have value depending on what is more important to you as a person or as a company that buys products I mean, I think for a long time, people thought industrial was cheaper, right? They're like, it's cheaper, it's faster. But how do you weigh those two things? Like for people who say that, like, how do they weigh, you know, yes, this is cheaper and faster, but this has a story and this potentially... And there's still a cost. Yeah. Totally. I, I feel the difference is that there's a lot of costs that are not really counted or included mm. in the industrial way of doing things. One is the environmental cost of all the energy, all the water, all the plastic that usually is involved. And the other is the human cost of like very bad conditions. Like if you get a t-shirt for $10, somebody lost in the process and it's most time the workers involved. So if you put those costs in the final calculation, then a lot of times the industrial is more expensive. And maybe adding one more element that is in most cases, the industrial production, it makes more sense to do it in Asia 
So that means you have to also ship products from Asia and add a lot of transportation uh, pollution compared to doing things locally that helps move way less things across the world and pollute less. So I feel that's the main difference, that if you only input, let's say, the monetary cost, the industrial way is more efficient. But if you start to put a price to the environment and to people's well-being, mm. then things change. I love that. I feel like what it's what you're making me think of is like sharing more values than just money. Like we always think about currency as things that we care about or like things that kind of can create a fair exchange for one thing for the other. But I think we're going in a direction where there are other forms of currency that are important to us besides just like paper money, people's lives, the environment. These are things that still impact our lives. It's also kind of fascinating. The Industrial Revolution was this very innovative, fast, exciting time. But now looking back on it, it's like, while it you know brought a lot of efficiencies and access to goods around the world, things were still left behind. Like, what was the impact of that positive and negative? And I think today, as things move really fast, too, and it's innovative time, thinking through maybe what are we losing or leaving out or who, what people are we leaving out as a result is kind of yeah, important. So we're not redoing this work. And it makes me think about how you were able to apply, like, how did you help preserve these techniques of these artisans? And why did you do that? Like, what's the emphasis on why the importance of tradition and helping? Great question. I think when we were analyzing the best way of collaborating with the communities, we realized that it was like the easiest path would be to you use talents they already had and skills they already had. And that's where the artisanal techniques were very obvious as a path to creating opportunities. And then it became very clear that the key would be how to scale, because most times the issue with artisanally made products is that you can't do a lot of them. But we realized there are millions of artisans around the world. If you are able to help organize them and put them into the same brand and teach them how to be a cooperative, for example, you can have the same scale as an industrial production. So we spent a lot of time at the beginning testing different ways of making it work, but knowing it was fun because since day zero, we were like, we're only going to try this if we think we have a chance of it being big and impacting a lot of people. So even we were not selling so much products, we spent so much time figuring out a scalable way of working with the communities. We tested hundreds of different ways and it was very cool because the one that worked was when we involved the community a lot in the process and also realized that we could leverage their talent to be a big weight on the whole system. So that's when we realized that we have to rely a lot on the community leaders to guide the people in the community because they had they, they knew the language, the traditions, the culture and, and how to communicate correctly. Mm -hmm. And to take the first community to a point where we were confident took us years. Mm -hmm. But once we got that nailed, we were able to scale to a lot of communities very easily. And I feel that's what is being super important and helpful, that we can make millions of products with artisans at the same speed as an industrial facility. 
But if you go to the community, the rhythm is the same they have had for all their life. It's not changing it and making them work crazy hours or making them go to factory. It's working from home. They decide their pace. They decide how much they want to work. Mm -hmm. But when you add up so many artisans that already know the techniques so or you don't need to teach them, that's how you can scale. And so how many artisans do you work with today? So including the ones that make the traditional techniques and the ones that make like the cut and sewing and the assembly, it's around 500. And you talked a little bit about this. How has their way of work changed? Like working with someone somewhere mm -hmm. and, you know, doing something that is based on their original craft versus, you know, maybe other ways they might have been working before. Totally. I think it's very interesting because for them, there's, I think, a few things that change. One is how hard it is for them to live from this work, no? So before it was betting on which materials, which colors, which designs to make. And a lot of times they didn't have access to data of what the world was buying. So they ended up having tons of inventory they had already spent a lot of money on. And uh, who was their consumer, like when they were doing what they were doing then? There were two main ways for them to sell. One was one of them going to the closest touristic city with a huge bag of products. Maybe it took them 10 hours to get there. There was a lot of risk in the way to the cities. And they put like a carpet on the floor and hope for tourists to buy something. But there's always a lot of bargaining. Like as it's not a brand or a store, people immediately think they should negotiate. And a lot of times they are so desperate to sell something that they agree a price that makes them lose money comparing the cost of the materials. And the other is giving product in consignment to souvenir stores. So that's why in most countries, souvenir stores are full of products. Is because so many artisans are needing to sell that they just give product in consignment and they hope the owners sell something. But it's very tough. And in the end, most artisans were making maybe $10 per month through this method. And the way it changed is that we can add up all the demand, all the data, and know exactly how much products we need to make beforehand. And the moment they deliver, we pay them. So now they can plan for the future. It's the first time we had to teach them how to make a savings account, for example, which is amazing. We had to teach them how to manage money because it's the first time they have actually some money to spare. So it was like changing that. And another big, big change was that in the communities, all the artisans make the same technique and the same products. So they see each other as competitors. So you had communities with a thousand people where it was very hard to make friends because all the other women were competitors. And if a tourist arrives there, you have a hundred women running to try to sell him something. And if one of them sells, all of the others feel like they lost a sale. And here now they become part of a team and it changed the community dynamics yeah. completely. And you can you start seeing them becoming very close friends and supporting each other. And in the end, to eliminate poverty, there's three key things. No, First, having the resources, having the education to use them, and having a support group to help you when bad things happen. So the new way of doing things is allowing them to have the three of those key elements. What comes out in everything Nuno is saying is how much time you spend in the communities. It's clear that you've established relationships with them. Like it's not just like research, but like truly getting oh, yeah. to know them. 
And you mentioned Spanish is for many of them their second language. How many languages would you say that you work with across the communities? Maybe 10. Wow, that's incredible. These cultures are unique and different, and it's not all the same. And so it makes sense that there's different techniques and skills that they have and that we get to experience because of brands like Someone Somewhere. And hearing all of the thought, like Frankie was saying, all of the thought that went into building this brand and really putting the emphasis and care on the communities and people that support it. What sort of structure did you build or decisions you made to put them front and center and put the value on them that enable you to actually scale and have the impact you do? I think the reason why we started and it was very clear, like we were like, how can we have an impact and really make a change? We realized that women were the key in these communities because there was so much talent not being used to its biggest potential and that women in most cases were artisans. And then from that, we learned that most artisans are textile artisans. And from that, we decided to focus on the fashion and apparel industry. Mm -hmm. So it was maybe very different to other methods or processes because we started with, like we are doing this because we think it's the clearest way to fight poverty. And then we brought on board designers and marketers and all the people needed to build a brand. I think the key is why we are doing it and how we, all of our decisions are around it. One very clear one that is crucial is that from the three co-founders, one of them, Fatima, her focus is on the people and the communities. So having one of the founders focusing there gives a lot of weight to that side. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been crucial. The other is Kike, who is in charge of making stuff happen, basically. <laughs> the uh, magic. Yeah, <laughs> he's the motor behind everything. He's also very close with the communities and passionate about it. So combining his very smart brain and how practical he is, but with a very strong understanding of the reality and the human side, has allowed us to build this engine to make things work at scale. And also, it's funny because when we started, every investor, for example, was like, we love the concept, but we don't think it can scale. Mm -hmm. Why? Why didn't they think it could scale? I think a lot of times is a lack of information and most of them have never been to a rural community. Mm. So in their mind, it's all chaos and people who are lazy or... But we talked with other people that had tried to do something similar and they were like, we've never raised funding because nobody believed we could do this mm. at scale. But it's great that finally we are proving it's possible and it's allowing us to not only have our own impact, but I think it's going to be way bigger the impact that other brands can have now that they can show an example of an yeah. artisan-made brand that is making, like this year will make 10 million products, for example. Uh. And all of them are signed by the artisan. <laughs> Cheers to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's big. Yeah, and, and all of them are made by artisans, signed by the artisan who make it. And I feel that's a number that proves it's possible. That's scale. Yeah. And it's innovative. Like, I feel yeah. like innovation has more than one face. And yeah. that's like <laughs> what you're showing. Totally. Like, their techniques are innovative, first of all, and they've existed for centuries. But then also like you're giving like the collective way that you work with everyone. It's just a different way of doing something. Yeah, I feel that's our biggest innovation is the way of doing things. And that's what we are trying to replicate across different products. 
There is also a lot of innovation possible in the product side when you include artisans. One that is helping a lot is it's way easier for us to customize than for a mass-produced brand mm. because they have usually very high minimum order quantities. So when we realized that, it's when we started working also with companies that you would be surprised by how much products they buy. And but they usually buy generic T-shirts or a black backpack and just embroider the logo of the brand. And we were like, we can do your exact colors at the scale you want it. We can do a hundred or a million of these. So that is helping us connect with very, very big companies. And when they realize that through their purchases, they can have such a big social and environmental impact, I think it becomes very obvious for them to switch. Yeah. So you... Respect the technique, you figure out what products and apparel and things make sense to pair them with that then create demand for this on-trend beautiful thing that also has function like your backpacks. So then the consumer enters and I imagine you learn a bunch of stuff that has you thinking about, okay, how do we scale this and take consumer feedback and move forward? And I'd love to yeah, like hear about some of those experiences and decisions. Totally. So for that side, I think a very good thing was that we focused until now on direct-to-consumer, but it was not only because it was cool or the way new brands were doing it. For us, it was because it would allow us to be very close to the customer and learn very fast what was working and what wasn't, compared with other ways where you don't get the information or maybe you just get it from a buyer, from a wholesaler. So... We were like, we need to build the brand in this way to get access to all the data and little by little improve all the products. Like another key, key thing and learning was even though people care more about the social and environmental impact, and just a parenthesis, when I say environmental, one part that helps us is the method, but also the materials. Like we use recycled materials so we don't have to use new things, but we learned very quickly that the products we did had to be amazing by themselves. Like even if they weren't made by artisans or mm -hmm. they weren't sustainable, they should be products that people would buy without the story because no one is willing to sacrifice quality, function, aesthetics for impact. Sure. But if you are able to make a product that actually competes in all of that and also has these two elements, mm -hmm. then it starts to become a very competitive item in the market. And I'm very grateful that we learned that very quickly because I feel a lot of brands, the founders value the impact so much that they can spend years thinking like, why people are not buying this if the story is so amazing? And the answer is always like, the product is not good enough. Like mm -hmm. it needs to really compete well, and then it'll show repeat purchasers and the loyalty of the customer rather than a one-time purchase if it's just for... Totally. The first purchase, maybe you can buy sell them one product mm -hmm. because of the story, if they got very passionate or in love with the story, but maybe they'll never wear it, so your brand will not be in the world and becoming more popular, and they'll never buy again because they will remember, oh, I already bought from them and I'm never using it. So... In the short term, you may survive. What you need is people who love the brand and not only buy from you, but become ambassadors and tell your story to everyone. So I think that's key. One of the things I also am fascinated by is all these different designs, but you also have different kind of themes on some of the shirts. I noticed that the designs are used to not only 
kind of nod back to techniques used throughout history, but also to help preserve like the stories and culture of today. And I don't know, I'd love to just spend a minute there. Great question. So the techniques and the traditional patterns the artisans use are always coming from stories from the past, no? Like, and from the things they were focusing on or that they had in the communities. That's why so many, not only in, in Latin America, but all around the world, the icons and patterns represent most times nature, for example, or astrology or cosmovision of the community. So I don't remember when we realized it, but it was like, what if we can also use their techniques to represent today's stories and what people is thinking about these days? I think the first thing we did that came very naturally was the pride. Before every brand was like doing pride collections, we had a lot of members of the community in our team and they pushed like, guys, this is a story and we can be part of the conversation and show people it's important. And it was amazing to make pride products with artisans because it was like a way of even for the artisans to become part of the movement without going to the parades in the city or, or all of this and people love that collection and we've done a few others like in the world cup for example we were like this is something that unites the world in a single event so we made world cup themed products but made by the artisans and told the stories of what the artisans felt while they were doing them yeah. and those collections always are like super successful not only in sales but more in I think a lot of people has learned about us thanks to those designs and collections. Yeah. I love how much you're talking about stories because like the artisans are almost like threading these stories into what they're doing and what people buy with them. People are also buying this because of the stories. So there's this like kind of nice exchange. Yeah. I feel in our case, being very good at telling the stories, it's crucial and mostly because It creates awareness and we think most people maybe are not that involved because they don't know that, for example, buying from an indigenous artisan almost always means fighting poverty directly. And it's one of the smartest ways of doing it. So through stories, we can share these statistics and make people realize how their purchases can have an impact. And in the end, I think brands now compete for attention. The brands that get the most attention are the ones that do better. Mm -hmm. And the best way to get people's attention is through stories. And this has been the case for ages. I am glad you brought that up because one of the gazillion amazing things about Someone Somewhere is that you have receipts. You invite third parties to come in and do research, right? And be like, how are we doing across making sure we're paying fair wages and doing all of this stuff? And then you make it public. So you have the stories, but then you also have the ability to show how much you're paying everybody and what you're using, which I think the stories are wonderful and necessary, but without the receipts, I mean, how do we know what's going on? Totally. And for that, I think it's basically like people are smart. So they will realize if something is authentic or not. And we were already doing it for our own improvement. And we were like, why don't we just share this with the world? And also to share that It's not a perfect journey and we still have things to improve and to learn. But knowing that part of our role is to inspire other entrepreneurs, we felt like... It's uh, working. Yeah. <laughs> But also it's in our journey, it was very hard to only see success in the press and like only you learn about this brand raising millions of dollars or making this huge product hit or something. 
we were like, this is not the reality. Like that's like the fruit of a lot of work. So we were like, we need to be way more authentic and show the struggles and the imperfections so that when everybody suffers in their journey, they don't feel like, oh, I'm terrible. It's like the best brands in the world screw up as well. Maybe they don't share it. We need to share it more though. That's how we it. learn. Yeah. And people like we were scared of what people would think if we were like, guys, I don't know, this product is not working and that's why we are discounting it. Mm -hmm. And people love the truth and the authenticity. So oh, I feel that's very important. Frankie, you mentioned earlier this shift in culture of materialism that was like coming up a lot here. It's true. It's like there is value in materials. And sometimes we talk about being materialistic in a negative way, but this is putting emphasis and value on it. Yeah, yeah. That's why, I mean, I have my bag right here. So we should definitely talk about Delta soon and the impact of that. But yeah, I mean, when we were talking about this, something that kept coming to mind was like exactly what Lola said. Like, I think a lot of the conversation, like you were saying, Nuno is going towards like, how can we be better in our choices and understanding how our actions like impact the world around us. So like, you know, with that comes this almost like culture shift away from materialism, where it's like, how do we get fewer things? Like, don't buy as much. But I feel like you're kind of flipping that because you're showing that there, like Lola said, there is still value in materials. It just mm -hmm. depends on like what they are, like buying like the backpacks, the t-shirts, like they have a story and they're not just like the materials themselves, but the materials themselves also have a story. Totally. I think in the end, we have to wear clothes And it's just being smarter of what we do. I think one movement is secondhand is amazing because you use way less things. In our case, as the goal is to create jobs, we have to produce things. Mm -hmm. But our path was to do them with recycled materials, local materials, so that the environmental impact was zero or the smallest possible. But it's just being smarter about what you buy. I agree that if you don't need it, you shouldn't buy it. And in our case, we focus also on making stuff that lasts for a long time, even if it's more expensive to do it that yeah, way. Yeah. And stuff that's functional, like that you might need every day. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Our goal is that if you buy something from us, you'll use it every day for a long time. But we also like tell people like, don't buy this if you don't need it. Yeah. Your recent partnership with Delta Airlines kind of really shows how you have proven it, this can scale and what's cover off on that as we finish our conversation. And the impact. Yeah, the impact. Of course. So this partnership, we launched it in February, but it took us about a year to prepare. And basically, Delta reached out to us to tell us they were looking for how to improve the products they give to the passengers. And one of those products was their amenity kit for Delta One, which is like their business tier. So it was amazing because they reached out. They were like, guys, we love what you're doing. We want something sustainable, ethical, transparent, and we think your brand is the right one. Sure is. But yeah. <laughs> we, we are just worried about the scale because we need a lot of these items. Luckily, they are able to travel. So they came to Oaxaca to meet the communities. Mm. And I think when they came, they understood how we can scale so much. And now you can find those products in all the international flights. And I think also in the from New York to LA and New York to San Francisco. But it's an amazing long-term partnership that is going to, or it's already creating 500,000 hours of work for artisans each year. 
and a thousand five hundred people, their income is now coming from that wow. partnership. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's and cool. good on Delta for going to Oaxaca and being, you know, doing their diligence to make sure it will be successful in scale. What a great place to end on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my um, gosh, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much to think about and just what a, a case study to help other companies do the same. And thank you. No, thank you. It was a great conversation. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Oh, okay. See y'all later. <laughs> Someone, somewhere. Proving there's demand and that you've got the supply. We want it. You've got it. Get yours at someonesomewhere.com. Okay, y'all. Carla Fernandez to us is one of the most influential fashion icons of our time. Her work has literally changed public policies in Mexico. Her artisan collaborations are throwbacks to the origin, and these original pieces respect the past but push us towards a future I desperately want to live in. Next episode, let's meet Carla. Carla.